This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is So Dead Podcast. Hey there, deadheads. Today is the Tacoist Tuesday of all Taco Tuesdays. It's Cinco de Mayo. I know there's not a whole lot of celebrating going on these days, but you guys can still order tacos, chips and queso, maybe some margs to go from your favorite local Mexican restaurant for carryout. And you should uh, support small business, shop local. On today's episode, I am going to talk to you guys about the tragic life and times of Shanna Gallier. Buckle up, buttercups, because this one's a ride. Shanna Kay, as her mother called her, was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan on June 28, 1975, the first and only daughter of a young, unwed mother and an alcoholic, abusive father. By all accounts, both of Shanna Kay's parents doted on her and treated her like a princess. But there was trouble in the home. In 1967, Shanna Kay's father had been convicted of taking indecent liberties with a child, and spent nearly three years behind bars. Soon after his release, he met Shanna Kay's mother, who was a divorcee with two young sons. The home they made together was so unsafe that the boys were removed from their custody and became wards of the state. Shanna Kay actually never met her older half-brothers, but she did have a younger brother, who was about a year and a half younger than her. In early 1978, Shanna Kay, who was two, and her brother, who was around a year old, were removed from their parents' care due to violence in the home. Their mother, who was 28 at the time and had already permanently lost custody of her two older children, finally kicked her abusive baby daddy to the curb, and so the state agreed to return Shanna Kay and her brother to their mother's care. After all, she was not the problem. She was said to be a loving, attentive mother with a big heart. It was just her taste in men that made her unfit. It was late spring. The kids had been gone for a couple of months, but they would be coming home within days, and Shanna Kay's mother was so excited. One afternoon, with temperatures in the 70s and the sun shining brightly, Shanna Kay's mother walked to the laundromat four blocks from her Kalamazoo apartment to wash the children's bedding so that they would have fresh, clean blankets when they returned. On the walk back to her apartment, Shanna Kay's mother was hit by a car and killed. With their mother gone and their father a violent alcoholic child molester, Shanna Kay and her brother became wards of the state. The courts deemed that their extended family, you know, they had aunts, uncles, grandparents, uh, that they were all unfit to raise them. Many of Shanna Kay's uncles had rap sheets a mile long. Several of her cousins had been taken from their parents' custody and put into foster care. There was just kind of violence and debauchery across the board. Not a good situation for kids. So just days before Shanna Kay's third birthday, she and her brother were split up and placed in the foster care system. Which, as we know, is almost always bad news. After years of being bounced here, there, and everywhere amid allegations of abuse from this foster home to that one, Shanna Kay was adopted by Ronald and Teresa Gallier of Battle Creek, Michigan, which is only about a half hour from Kalamazoo, so she didn't go far. Uh, her name was changed to Shanna Elizabeth Gallier. 
Shanna's adoptive father worked for one of Battle Creek's biggest employers, the Kellogg Company. You know, like Kellogg's Rice Krispies, Kellogg's Frosted Flakes, Kellogg's Pop-Tarts. Strawberry Frosted is the only kind. Battle Creek is actually known as Cereal City because it is where cereal was born. Cereal City sounds a lot more fun than it really is. All it is is a town with a lot of factories where they make cereal and a lot of buildings owned by the Kelloggs. I I would be a little more interested in a cereal city with, like, amusement park rides, cereal-themed stores and parks, and yeah, anyway, that's a whole thing. I'm, I'm cereal-obsessed, so. Shanna's father's job transferred him to Omaha, Nebraska in the mid-90s, and the family went with him. But when Shanna turned 18, she returned to Michigan, got married at the age of 20, and settled in Delton with her new husband. Delton is a small town about 20 miles north of Battle Creek. The young couple divorced after about two years, and in 1997, Shanna began dating 22-year-old Raymond Nice, her co-worker at a plastic factory in Battle Creek. I bet that plastic had something to do with cereal. Raymond fell head over heels for his new girlfriend, but her insane jealousy of other women drove a wedge between them, and by early 1998, he was looking for a way out of the relationship. His timing, though, was terrible, because Shanna was pregnant. The baby was due in August, and Raymond wanted to do right by his little family, so he bought a trailer for them to live in together. But when she was eight months pregnant, Shanna shocked her baby daddy by moving in with another man. 21-year-old Glenn Hare of Emmett Township, which is just another little town in the Kalamazoo Battle Creek area. At first, Shanna insisted that Glenn was just her roommate. Like, dude, what eight-month pregnant woman is going to move in with another man when the father of her unborn child, who is still her boyfriend, wants her to move in with him. Very weird. Anyway, it quickly became clear that Glenn was not just her roommate, and for the next month, Shanna kind of bounced back and forth between her two boyfriends, the one she was having a baby with and the one she was living with. Most women in their last month of pregnancy barely have the energy to shower every day, let alone juggle two men at the same time. But hey, you do you, girl. Uh, Cody Nathaniel Gallier was born on August 25th, 1999 in Battle Creek. After his birth, Shanna's back and forth between men came to an end and she chose to try to make a life with Glenn. Raymond, Cody's father, just kind of faded into the background and only saw his son here and there. But things were difficult for Shanna and Glenn. Glenn had a son, just a few months older than Cody, so there were two infants in the house. Cody was colicky, so he was always crying. Both Glenn and Shanna worked at a convenience store, so money was always tight. Uh, They actually worked at the same store, but they worked opposite shifts, so one of them was always working and one of them was always with the babies. And they were young. Shanna was 24, Glenn was 21. They both had pretty fresh exes, a baby mama on one side, a baby daddy on the other, and when you're talking co-parenting and blended families with infants, that's a lot more, that's a lot more intense. So there was lots of drama there. I mean, that's a lot. It's a lot of pressure for everyone involved. On the morning of January 29th, 1999, Shanna got up with Cody, got him dressed, and then left the house before 9 a.m. for a full shift at work. That evening, around 5 p.m., Shanna was notified that her five-month-old son had been rushed to the emergency room. 
When she arrived at the hospital, she was told that her son's prognosis was grim. Her little baby was hooked up to a ventilator and needed to be transferred to Bronson Methodist Hospital in Kalamazoo, where a trauma team was waiting. But nothing could be done to save Cody Gallier. In the early morning hours of January 30th, he died from a severe brain hemorrhage that officials said was caused by shaken baby syndrome. Later that morning, Glenn Hare was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. His trial began in December of 1999, so almost a full year later. His attorney insisted that he hadn't harmed baby Cody, though, that the closest he ever came to shaking him was when he would toss him into the air and catch him, a game he played with the baby to get him to stop crying. He claimed that the night before, on January 28th, when Glenn was working and Shanna was home with Cody, she'd called him at work and said, I dropped Cody, you need to come home right now. By the time he got home, Cody was sleeping and seemed okay. The entire next day, though, Cody's behavior was off. He was abnormally quiet and not his usual fussy self, leading up to when Glenn's mother stopped by around 5 p.m. to visit and found the baby not breathing. On the second day of Glenn's trial, Shanna was called to the stand. She produced several letters that Glenn had written to her from jail, asking her to cover for him and say she had dropped Cody, asking her to lie and say that it was an accident. Uh, after this testimony, a recess was called, and when Glenn returned to the courtroom, he pleaded guilty to second-degree murder for the death of his girlfriend's five-month-old son. At the age of 22, he was sentenced to eight and a half to 25 years in prison. Following the trial, Shanna moved back to Omaha, where she would stay. And this, friends, is where our story begins. In Omaha, Shanna started going by Liz, which was short for her middle name, Elizabeth. She continued to be unlucky in love. She went through a lot of relationships, but none of them stuck. She had two kids, a boy and a girl, that she raised on her own. She became something of a party girl, uh, drinking heavily, going out a lot, hooking up with lots of men not always clearly ending one relationship before beginning another. Far from her strict religious upbringing in Serial City, Michigan, Liz was in her prime. She was petite, but super top-heavy, if you know what I mean. Uh, she had long brown hair, big brown eyes, lots of tattoos. In September 2010, when Liz was 35, she met a man by the name of Todd... I, I'm going to redact his last name here because I only found it in court transcripts, so I think that he has stayed pretty anonymous in this whole mess, and I'm not going to be the asshole that uses his whole name. Um, so she, she met a man named Todd on an online dating site. Todd was an IT tech living in Council Bluffs, Iowa, a city just a few miles east of Omaha. The two had an on and off, but mostly on, relationship for several years. Todd was good to Liz, he helped her with money when she needed it, helped out with her kids while she worked. He thought they were exclusive, but unbeknownst to him, Liz was still meeting other men online. In the summer of 2012, two years into her allegedly exclusive relationship with Todd, Liz met a 35-year-old single father by the name of Dave Krupa on Plenty of Fish. Dave had just recently moved to the area following a split with his girlfriend of 12 years and the mother of his two children, Amy Flora. Amy was originally from Council Bluffs, so when she and Dave decided to end their relationship, she left their home in Wisconsin to go back to her hometown. Dave followed her so that he could be near his kids, so 
She was going back to her tribe, whereas he was completely cutting himself off from his. The only people that he knew in Council Bluffs were people he knew because of Amy. He got a job working at an auto repair shop in Omaha, and he lived in a small apartment in the city. One of those sad little divorced dad apartments with, you know, no furniture and disposable dishware and you know what I'm talking about. Liz was actually the first woman Dave met on Plenty of Fish, and he was very upfront with her that he was not looking for a commitment. He just wanted someone to talk to, have a good time with, and of course, someone to have no strings attached sex with. Liz told him she wanted all the same things, which would make sense considering she was in a serious relationship with someone else. But as it turns out, she was lying. Because before long, she began pressuring Dave to make a commitment to her, pushing him for more. She became borderline obsessed. Dave, though, had not been lying, and he had no interest in a serious relationship, which he told her over and over and over. They fought a lot, and their on-and-off casual relationship was mostly off by the night of October 29, 2012, when Liz arrived at Dave's apartment unannounced to get some of her things. He wouldn't let her in because he had a date inside, a woman named Carrie Farber. This shouldn't have bothered Liz as much as it did. She did have a whole-ass boyfriend that Dave knew nothing about, but she was hurt. She freaked out, caused a scene, so much so that Dave's date left. The tall, beautiful brunette with hazel eyes passed Liz as she exited Dave's apartment, and according to Liz called her a bitch. The encounter was all of 10 seconds long, if that. Once Dave's date was gone, Liz entered his apartment to gather her belongings, and of course, she and Dave fought. She cried, he asked her to leave. Uh, they had a few more communications over the next few weeks, but then they stopped talking altogether. After just a few months of dating, it was over. Or so they both thought, because things were about to get really fucking weird. It was mid-November when Liz called Dave, frantic and furious. She wanted to know how Carrie Farber, the woman who'd been in Dave's apartment that night, had gotten her phone number, her email address, and her home address. She told Dave that Crazy Carrie had been sending her vulgar and threatening emails and text messages for days, and had broken into her garage, keyed her car, stolen her checkbook, and spray-painted the words, Whore from Dave, on her garage wall. Now I'm gonna post a <laughs> I'm gonna post a picture of that on the website because it's so weird to me that choice of phrasing whore from Dave. Like, what does that mean? Should it have been whore comma from Dave? Like you're a whore from Dave, or you're a whore of Dave, or Dave made you a whore? I'm I'm not real sure what that was supposed to mean there, but that's what it said. Uh, as it turned out. Carrie had been angrily stalking Dave as well. He felt awful to have dragged Liz into the whole thing. Who knew that dating multiple women from Plenty of Fish at once could end in trouble? I knew Dave. I knew. Dave and Liz agreed to meet to talk about everything that was going on. He told her that he and Carrie had casually dated for just a couple of weeks when all of a sudden she flipped a switch on him asked him to move in with her, and when he declined, she freaked out and began stalking and harassing him, calling and hanging up, texting and sending emails upwards of 50 and 60 times a day, threatening him, threatening his children, threatening Liz, who wasn't even his girlfriend anymore, 
But he had no idea that she had been contacting Liz, too, and he had no clue how she'd gotten Liz's information. Although, Carrie was a computer programmer with a genius-level IQ, so cyber-stalking was probably nothing at all to her. Dave told Liz that apparently Carrie had also ditched her son, quit her job, and dropped off the radar altogether. Her mother had reported her missing just a few days after she started acting strangely toward Dave. On November 21st, police had visited Dave at work, at first interrogating him as if he were a suspect in Carrie's disappearance. But after he explained to them everything that had happened and showed them the crazy messages Carrie had been sending him, they changed their tune. Carrie was bipolar, after all, and had probably gone off her meds. She was likely in the throes of a complete psychotic break. And for some reason, Dave, a guy she'd only casually dated for two weeks, and his ex, who he'd only casually dated for a few months, were her primary targets. Over the next several weeks, things got worse. Much, much worse. Dave would get texts from Carrie saying things like, Hey, how's that sandwich you're eating? And sure enough, he'd be sitting at the kitchen table eating a sandwich. Or, what were you just doing in the bathroom? After he'd just walked out of the bathroom. How fucking creepy. So she's sitting outside his apartment, just watching him through the windows. Who has time for that? If I had that kind of time, I'd be like getting caught up on my laundry, my Netflix shows. I would not be doing that. His apartment was broken into, his belongings were slashed and cut up, Liz continued to get threatening emails and texts, her house was broken into several times. Carrie clearly hadn't left town, which was what she apparently told her mother, that she'd taken a job in Kansas and was just dropping her entire life, including her son. But police could not find her. Her messages were coming from dozens of devices and from locations all over the country. Police figured that, since she was a computer programmer, she was using software to disguise her location. On January 10, 2013, two months after the crazy Carrie nightmare began, Dave arrived home from work and took notice of an SUV in the parking lot that was completely buried in snow, as if it had been there a while. And we know how that is, us northerners. When there's a big snowstorm and, you know, 12 inches of snow get dropped, it might take a day or so, but everybody gets their shit cleared off and starts moving again. So when there's a vehicle in, you know, a store parking lot or an apartment building parking lot that is just encased in this snow when everyone else has moved on, you notice it because it looks kind of funny. When he looked closer, he realized it was Carrie's Ford Explorer. He called the police, they impounded the vehicle, processed it, dusted it for prints, but found nothing that would help them figure out where Carrie was. The insanity went on for months. Carrie was texting and emailing Dave and Liz incessantly, no matter how many times they changed their numbers. The police couldn't find her, her family couldn't get in touch with her, but she was around. She had to be. She kept breaking into Liz and Dave's apartments just to fuck with them. She was watching them, stalking them. Liz filed dozens of police reports, but nothing was happening. Carrie was active on social media. She would send her family birthday wishes, chat with her son here and there, rant about how much she hated Liz. One post even claimed that Dave had proposed to her and she'd said yes. But for all of her online activity and emails and texts, nobody that knew Carrie had seen or spoken to her since November 13th, 2012, the day she flipped out on Dave. What was it about Dave? Liz had become completely obsessed with him after just a few months of casually dating, 
even though she had a real boyfriend that actually treated her well. And now Carrie, a brilliant, independent woman, after just two weeks, had gone completely insane over the man. Like, what? I've seen him. He's just a guy. There are plenty of men out there, ladies. If someone's not interested in you, you go find another one. Or you just do the shit by yourself. We can do it. What does Lizzo say? If he don't love you anymore, walk your fine ass out the door. Am I right? If there was a silver lining for Liz in any of this, which, where is there a silver lining in being stalked by a crazy person, it was that she and Dave were back together. But also, she was still totally in a relationship with Todd, which Dave knew nothing about. In early August 2013, two things happened. Liz and Dave broke up, again, and Liz and her kids moved in with Todd after being evicted from their home. Poor Todd still had no idea he'd been being cheated on for over a year at this point. On August 16th, Carrie sent Dave an email, and by the way, the name on the email account that she used was Carrie Krupa, so she was using Dave's last name in her email. Um, She sent him an email that said she was going to burn Liz's house down. Now, keep in mind, she is still messaging him a bazillion times a day at this point, saying all kinds of crazy things. She once threatened to slit his kids' throats. Just awful, awful things. So either he didn't see the email because he had stopped reading them, which would make sense, or he saw it and he just didn't take it seriously. But he should have. Liz and her kids were living with Todd in Council Bluffs at this point, but she was still moving things out of the house in Omaha. On the morning of August 17th, so the day after Dave got that threatening email, Liz went to her house in Omaha to get some more of her belongings and take them to Todd's, and when she arrived, she found the house completely ablaze. It was a clear case of arson. There were several points of origin for the fires. Liz lost two dogs, a cat, and a pet snake in the fire, along with a substantial amount of her belongings. So can we just take a moment to talk about the things that Liz has lost so far in this story? She lost her mom, her dad, and her entire biological family by the time she was three. She lost her first baby. She lost Dave, who she clearly loved a tremendous amount. She lost her freedom and her sense of security when Carrie began stalking her. And now she lost her home and four pets. That's a lot. But this wasn't just taking a toll on her. Dave was a nervous wreck. He started drinking heavily. He bought a gun. This cute girl he'd met online that said she only wanted no-strings-attached sex from him was ruining his life. Eventually, though, things started to calm down. The messages went from 50 to 60 a day to just three or four. Liz focused on her relationship with Todd. Dave moved to Council Bluffs in early 2015 to be closer to his kids and their mom, uh, which just coincidentally then put him closer to Liz. Amy Flora, Dave's ex, had been being harassed by Carrie through all of this as well, just not quite to the level that Liz and Dave were. But as the years passed, yes, years, there was still no sign of Carrie Farver. Liz and Dave just couldn't seem to quit one another, and in mid-2015, they started dating again. In October 2015, Liz and Todd broke things off for good, although it would be a few months before she and the kids moved out. And then in November of 2015, Liz and Dave broke up again, this time for the last time. 
On December 4th, 2015, Liz Gallier walked into the Potawatomi County Sheriff's Office in Council Bluffs to file a police report for harassment. Again. But this time, it wasn't against Carrie Farber. It was against Dave's baby mama, Amy Flora. She said that Amy had started sending her threatening texts and emails, and she noticed that the tone in them, the typos, the misspellings, they all reminded her quite a bit of the messages she'd been getting from Carrie for the past three years. And it got her thinking. Suddenly, it didn't make sense that Carrie, who had only dated Dave for a couple of weeks, would go that psycho over him. But Amy, who'd broken up with him because he refused to marry her, who had given him 12 years of her life and two children, only to be rejected because Dave would rather date randos on Plenty of Fish, had cause to behave like a woman scorned. Oh yeah, she did. It made more sense for her to be the one to go to these lengths to get rid of romantic rivals. She had more invested, and she had more to lose. And so I ask again, what is it about Dave? Because now we've got three women that have potentially absolutely lost their minds over him. Liz told police that the reason she wanted to file a report was because in her latest message, Amy had threatened to shoot her. And Liz knew that in one of the recent break-ins being attributed to Carrie, Dave's gun had gone missing. A detective took the report and told Liz he'd follow up with Amy. But before he had a chance, things got worse. The next day, on December 5, 2015, a call was placed to 911 from Big Lake Park in Council Bluffs. Liz Gallier had been shot and was bleeding out alone in the dark. She was rushed to the hospital and underwent hours of surgery before doctors were able to stop the bleeding and stabilize her. She told police that she'd gone to the park alone to think, because Jesus Christ, what in the world, right? Uh, and that she was sitting on a bench on a walking trail, and Amy Flora came up behind her, pointed a gun at her, asked her, how do you like fucking Dave, and shot her in the leg. Police raced to Amy Flora's apartment with guns drawn, only to find her in her pajamas holding a toddler in her arms. She insisted she'd been home with her kids all day, and a neighbor corroborated her story. She was asked to take a polygraph test. She agreed, and she failed it. Police told Liz they were worried that she was right, that Amy was the stalker, not Carrie, and that if Amy would go so far as to shoot Liz, maybe she'd done something terrible to Carrie. They asked Liz to help them get a confession out of Amy, and she did. Through email conversations, Amy revealed to Liz that she'd gone to Dave's apartment on the morning of November 13, 2012, and found Carrie there alone. The two women argued, then Amy forced Carrie into her own vehicle and stabbed her several times dismembered the body, burned the pieces, put them into trash bags, and threw them into a dumpster. What in the hell was going on? For years, police thought the stalker was Carrie Farber, a bipolar genius who fell off the face of the earth after being rejected by a man she met on Plenty of Fish. Now, it looked like it might have been Amy Flora, the mother of Dave's two children, the entire time. At no point before this had Amy ever even been on anyone's radar. It would be another several months before the truth was revealed. On December 22, 2016, Liz Gallier, the sad little orphan from Kalamazoo, was arrested for the murder of Carrie Farber. It was Liz the whole time. Here's what really happened. Liz was completely obsessed, obviously, with Dave Krupa, 
She was desperately clinging to the shambles of their non-relationship in October of 2012 when Carrie Farber entered the picture. Carrie, a 37-year-old single mother, was a computer programmer at a big-name firm in Omaha who met Dave when she stopped into the auto repair shop he worked at to have her Ford Explorer worked on. She was gorgeous and very easy-breezy, a nice change of pace from the heaviness Dave had been feeling in his relationship with Liz. Sparks flew between the two, but she was a customer, he was a professional, so he didn't make a move. And then, while perusing plenty of fish a few days later, because he apparently had not learned his lesson with Liz, Dave happened across Carrie's profile. He sent her a message, and they planned their first date for October 29, 2012, at the local Applebee's. After the date, the two went back to his place. Before they even had time to take their coats off, Liz showed up unannounced, claiming she needed to get some of her belongings. Dave told her he had a date inside, she became emotional, it was a whole thing. So Carrie left, and in doing so, she passed by Liz on her way out the door. Despite Liz's accusation that Carrie called her a bitch, Dave later told police that the women did not speak at all. Carrie did not seem upset by the situation, she just laughed it off and went home. Liz got her things, she and Dave got into a fight, and then after he got her to leave, he called Carrie, who was on her way home to Macedonia, Iowa, a tiny little town about 40 minutes east of Omaha. He apologized, she invited him to meet her at her house, and he did. Before they got biblical, Carrie made her intentions clear. She told Dave that she didn't want a commitment, she just wanted a casual relationship, someone to talk to and hook up with. And Dave was like, fuck yes. Finally, right? That was all he wanted and what he thought he'd signed up for with Liz. But as it turns out, no. From that night on, Dave was smitten. Carrie was pretty, fun, and super smart. She had a genius-level IQ and worked as a frickin' computer programmer. I can barely get my computer to turn on sometimes. It's a miracle that I'm recording my voice into my computer at this moment, if you want to know the truth. Uh, She was a single mom to a 14-year-old. She had her son, Max, at the age of 23 when she was still in college. He was the light of her life. She was very close with her mother, Nancy. They talked almost every day. She did have bipolar disorder, but she'd been on medication that kept her evened out, as her mother put it, for many, many years. she just landed her dream job, and she was excited about the future. Carrie kept her home life separate from her relationship with Dave, which was really easy to do. Her family was in Macedonia, the, the city, not the country, uh, and Dave was in Omaha, where her job was, so two separate worlds. Dave and Carrie kept things casual, but they started to spend more and more time together, and Liz started to become a bad memory, even though she still texted Dave all the time. The second week of November 2012, so like two weeks into her relationship with Dave, Carrie had a big project come up at work and was working late hours, sometimes until 8 or 9 at night. Then she had a nearly hour-long drive home, only to get up at 5 the next morning and do it all over again. So, no-strings-attached Dave invited her to stay with him for the week until her project was finished so that she didn't have to keep making that long drive back and forth. Carrie asked her mom if Max could stay with her for the week while she stayed with a friend in Omaha to complete her project, and of course her mom said yes. Carrie said goodbye to her son and her mother with every intention of seeing them the following weekend. She went to work on Monday, November 12th, and her co-workers had no reason to believe she wouldn't show up the next morning. She slept over at Dave's place that night, and the next morning he kissed her goodbye and left for work around 6.30 a.m. 
Carrie logged into her Facebook account at 6.39 a.m. and logged off two minutes later. She never arrived at work that morning. Police believe that the account Liz gave them as Amy was accurate, that she waited for Dave to leave, entered the apartment, fought with Carrie, forced her into her own vehicle, and then stabbed her multiple times before disposing of her body by dismembering it, burning it, and tossing it in a dumpster. Now, remember when Dave found Carrie's SUV at his apartment complex a couple months after she disappeared and the police took possession of it? The only evidence they found was a single fingerprint on a mint tin, but it didn't belong to Carrie or Dave or anyone in their database. When they ran it again, once they'd put all the pieces together, they found that it belonged to Liz fucking Gullier, who had no reason to have ever been in Carrie's vehicle. A few years later, when they reprocessed the SUV as a possible murder scene, they found Carrie's blood a few layers deep in the fabric of the passenger seat. Whatever happened on November 13, 2012 happened quickly, because by 9.54 a.m., a text was sent from Carrie's phone to Dave asking him to move in with her. Dave was shocked by this text, and he felt like it came out of nowhere. He said, uh, no thanks, and that was when Carrie began unleashing her fury on him, Liz, and Amy. But none of that was Carrie. She was already dead. It was all Liz. In fact, when Carrie's mother, Nancy, was shown transcripts of some of the texts and emails, she was adamant that Carrie hadn't written them. Carrie was meticulous about spelling, grammar, and typos. Girl, I can relate. Uh, But these texts, and I've read quite a few of them, they were so ratchet. They legit sound like something written by Cletus the Slackjawed Yokel. Just ridiculous. Like, even if she'd had a psychotic break, or was on drugs, or was drinking heavily, or all three even, there was just no way. A mama knows, and her mama knew but nobody would listen to her. Speaking of Carrie's mom, the same day the weirdness started with Dave, November 13th, Carrie sent her mother a text that said, hey, sorry for the late notice. I decided to take a job in Kansas. And then basically told her, you go ahead and keep Max and all my stuff. Peace. I'm out. This was so out of the blue and out of character for Carrie. She loved Max more than anything. She would never give him up or leave him. She loved her job. She'd only been working there a few months. She loved her house, which she'd inherited from her grandparents and put so much time and work into. This just wasn't possible. Nancy and Carrie texted back and forth for a few days, but when Carrie refused to come home or even speak to her mother on the phone, Nancy knew something was wrong. The final straw was when Carrie missed her stepbrother's wedding, which she had promised Max she would attend. She was also texting back and forth a little bit with Max, but she refused to speak to him also. So Nancy called the Potawatomi County Sheriff's Office and reported her daughter missing. They looked at the texts that she'd sent Nancy and Max, considered the fact that she was bipolar, and decided she'd likely gone off her meds and left on her own. So there wasn't a lot of urgency in trying to find her, but they were looking for her. So police in Iowa are searching for Carrie because she's a missing person. Police in Nebraska are searching for Carrie because they have a warrant out for her arrest. They believed she was a stalker, an arsonist, and just an all-around psycho. And the whole time, her family felt helpless. Even if she had left on her own, she wouldn't stay away. She'd miss birthdays, holidays, her son's football games, her father's funeral. But the whole time, she wasn't missing-missing. 
She was still texting from her phone, writing from her Facebook to family members, friends, everyone. Uh, And they knew it wasn't her, but like, of course you want to believe that it is and that she's okay and that she's coming back. After Carrie's father died, though, her mother had a dream where he appeared to her and said, don't worry, Nancy, she's with me. And she said that was the point at which she knew Carrie was gone. Max graduated from high school in the summer of 2016, so this is after police are pretty sure they know what's up, but Liz still hasn't been arrested and the family still doesn't have any answers. He sent his mother a text that said, If this is really you, please come back. I want you to be at my graduation. He got no response. The break in the case came, of course, when Psycho Liz shot herself in the leg and almost killed herself. She lost a lot of blood. Uh, Her story unraveled pretty quickly after that. But even before that happened, detectives were on to her. In April 2015, two and a half years after Carrie Farber disappeared, Potawatomi County Detective Sergeant Jim Doty and Corporal Ryan Avis asked the powers that be if they could look at the case with fresh eyes. They enlisted digital forensics expert Tony Cava to help. Corporal Avis was going to work the case as if Carrie were still alive, and he was going to exhaust every avenue trying to prove that she was still out there. Sergeant Doty was going to work the case as if Carrie were dead, and was going to explore every lead to try to prove that she was gone. Tony Cava was going to pore over all of the digital data they'd collected, and there was a ton, because all of the communications from Carrie were made by internet, so they had thousands and thousands of texts and emails and Facebook messages to try to trace. But they also had something else. During the investigation, both Dave Krupa and Liz Gallier gave detectives their phones and let them do file dumps. And, as anyone who watches true crime shows knows, things don't just go away when you delete them. They can be undeleted by experts. Now that he was looking at the evidence through the lens of, Liz did this, let's prove it, Tony Cava found some shit. He found deleted emails that were sent from Liz's phone in Carrie's name, He found a deleted photo of Carrie's SUV that was taken in December 2012. So this is after Carrie and the SUV had gone missing, but before it turned up at Dave's apartment. He found a YouTube video posted to a channel that was supposedly Carrie's of the front of Dave's apartment building. It was titled something crazy like Husband's Cheating Spot. I don't know. I don't remember exactly, but it was really weird. Um... Liz forgot to disguise the IP address on that one, so that one was traced right back to her computer. Once it was determined that all of the social media accounts and email addresses and text messages were being managed by an imposter, Corporal Avis was able to find absolutely nothing that might suggest that Carrie was still alive. So that's all there was, was the internet contact, and once that was determined not to be her at all, there was absolutely nothing. Sergeant Doty's investigation was much more successful, unfortunately. All signs pointed to the theory that Liz Gallier murdered Carrie Farber, assumed her identity, then proceeded to stalk herself and Dave for years. One clue was that Liz's filing of police reports, so all of the big, really scary events, the break-ins, the death threats, the fire, those all coincided with times that she and Dave were drifting apart. Then Crazy Carrie would do something awful, and it would bring them back together. Convenient, no? And that fire, 
the first big shocking show of aggression from Carrie. How convenient that it happened, not where Liz was actively living, but at the house she'd just been evicted from, after she'd already moved most of her belongings out and while her kids were not there. So again, officials were already on to Liz when she showed up at the police station randomly and filed that harassment charge against Amy Flora, which she did because she'd successfully gotten Carrie out of the way, but Dave still didn't want her, so now she had to get the new threat out of the way. But when she shot herself, it was all over. Police saw through that immediately because, as it turns out, a woman that can't spell or type in coherent sentences also can't stage a crime scene. The only reason she'd gotten away with things for so long was because nothing was being looked at with her in mind as a suspect. It was all, they were looking at all of this to try to find Carrie, not to try to incriminate Liz. But as soon as she came under suspicion, it was all ridiculously transparent. So she shoots herself, she's blaming Amy, the police are playing along, So they ask her to help them get information out of Amy, and then they're easily able to track Amy's confession emails as coming from Liz's computer. So they know, I I mean, they know, but everything they've got is circumstantial. There's no body, no weapon, no witnesses. They've only got one shot at bringing charges against Liz, and they know they've got to get this right. But while they're building their case, psycho Liz is just out there being a psycho. And she's got her sights firmly set on Amy Flora now. Amy, you in danger, girl. So detectives tell Dave he needs to stop fucking with Liz and move in with Amy and the kids to protect them because they are not safe. When he does this, Liz flips shit. She calls the police, screaming at them. She shot me, she killed Carrie, and she gets to live with Dave. It's no fair. She didn't say the no fair part, but she said the rest of it. You can actually hear the audio of it on um, some of the programs about the case. It's so embarrassing. Police have Liz under surveillance, obviously, and she is stalking the shit out of Amy and the kids at this point, following them everywhere, sitting outside the house spying on them. So eventually they have to play their hand and arrest her, even though they don't feel that the case is necessarily ready to go to trial. Liz was arrested in December of 2016, and her trial was scheduled to begin in May. Prosecutors knew she did it because, of course, she fucking did, but they weren't confident a judge would agree. Liz had waived her right to a jury trial, and she asked the judge to decide her fate, which was actually a smart move on her attorney's part. A jury would be more likely to base their decision on emotion and common sense, whereas a judge is more likely to be like, nobody, no weapon, no way, Jose. So uh, for any of you who don't believe in, you know, karma or kismet or miracles, this part's for you. Just before the trial was about to start, detectives stopped by Dave Krupa's house. They were talking to him about how they were worried that what they had wasn't enough to convict, and they asked him to rack his brain. Is there anything else you might have that can help us? Anything we haven't seen or thought of? And Dave remembered, suddenly, miraculously, that he had this old tablet of Liz's packed away with his things. That tablet had an SD card on it. And that SD card had thousands of photos on it. One of those photos was of a decaying human foot, which had been severed from the body and partially burned. On the top of the foot was a tattoo, 
the Chinese symbol for mother. Detectives called Carrie's mom and asked if she had any distinguishing marks or tattoos. Nancy says, yeah, she had a few tattoos, including one on the top of her foot, the Chinese symbol for mother. Shanna Elizabeth Gallier was convicted of first-degree murder and second-degree arson, and on August 15, 2017, at the age of 42, she was sentenced to life without parole, plus 18 to 20 years for burning down her own fucking house. So, let's just briefly recap what this maniac did, shall we? She murdered her booty call's booty call, stole her identity, keyed her own car, spray-painted her own garage with the words whore from Dave, which I still have no idea what that means. Uh, She sat out Dave's apartment night after night with Carrie's phone in her hand, stalking him, talking about, hey, did you just put mustard or mayonnaise on that sandwich you're making in your kitchen while wearing a blue t-shirt and plaid boxers? She burned her own house down, killed her own pets, she shot herself, But to me, the sickest part is the hundreds of hours she spent texting with Carrie's mother and son, posting to Carrie's Facebook page, sending emails as Carrie. Like, what kind of monster? Maybe the kind of monster that would kill her own child? Remember where this all started? When Liz was still Shanna, still living in Michigan, and her boyfriend killed her baby? Remember how Glenn, the boyfriend, said he didn't hurt little Cody? How he sometimes tossed him into the air as a game, but never shook him hard enough to cause his brain to hemorrhage and his retinas to detach. How Shanna had called him the night before Cody stopped breathing and said she'd dropped him. But then Shanna produced those letters that Glenn supposedly wrote from jail, asking her to tell the police that she did drop him um, to help cover for him. Well, Glenn's mother tells a very different story from what was reported in the papers at the time. First of all, she claimed that her son is mentally disabled and very easily manipulated. And as we know, Shanna clearly, clearly was a master manipulator. Glenn's mother claims that she was with him and Cody most of that day. She went over to the house after Shanna left for work and she took Glenn and Cody shopping. Uh, She noticed that Cody was unusually quiet and subdued. He was almost always fussy and crying. She thought it was strange, but she was probably just glad for the quiet for once. Cody was conscious when she left, but when she came back around 5 p.m., she found him not breathing. She absolutely believes her son's story, that Shanna dropped Cody the night before, or said she dropped him to cover up whatever she really did to him, and it just took that long for the trauma to present itself physically, by which point it was too late. She also claims that before Shanna was ever even pregnant with Cody, she would tell people that she once had a baby that died of shaken baby syndrome, which, remember, she was married for a couple years before she met Cody's father. So that's strange. Did she kill her own baby? I don't know. But is it possible? Absolutely. Either way, Glenn Hare served eight and a half years in prison for the murder of Cody Gallier, and Liz Gallier will spend the rest of her days at the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women for the murder of Carrie Farber. And that is the insane story of Shanna Liz Gallier, probably the most frightening criminal I've ever covered, because girl was bonkers. And of course, she's from right here in Michigan. My sources for this episode are a wild story all of their own. 
I know that I've been talking for like seven hours already, so just hang in here with me for a little bit longer. Uh, the first time I saw this story was on an episode of Dateline hosted by my favorite, Keith Morrison, back in 2017. But Keith didn't make any mention of Michigan or the baby or a lot of things. You know, he's got to keep his shows toit. But then a couple months ago, My Favorite Murder put up an old live show from Omaha where Georgia covered the Liz Gallier case, and she just casually mentioned that Liz was from Michigan. Of course, my ears perked up, and I knew I was going to do this one, like ASAP, because it's such a crazy story. But I looked, you know, here, there, everywhere. I could not find anything at all about her being from Michigan. And then I came across little Cody's obituary in an old newspaper, and all of the articles about his murder and the trial came up. And Shanna's name was spelled wrong in all of them. She was identified as Shauna Gallier. So that was why she wasn't coming up under any of that. Uh, so I kept searching under Cody's name and I came across a Google Books page. And I was like, what? Wait, what? There's a book? I didn't know there was a book. I click on the book. And it is by Leslie Rule, the daughter of true crime queen Anne Rule. You know the one. I downloaded the Kindle version so quick. But I'm short on time, right? So it's April 29th at this point, And this episode has to be researched, written, recorded, edited, and ready for human ears by May 3rd. That is not a lot of time. So I'm skimming the book for the parts about Michigan. And I found pretty much everything I was looking for except the author used aliases for everyone, so I wasn't able to then go and search them to get more information. Um, but I just kept thinking, like, how did I not know about this book? Why isn't anyone talking about this book? So I went back to the landing page on Amazon, and the book was published on April 28th, the day before I found it and the day before I started doing my research for the story. How's that for perfect timing? I still haven't finished the book. I'm going to. It's fascinating. I just didn't have time to get it done before I needed to um, record this episode. But it's got so many more details that I wasn't able to squeeze into this story. You know a story's crazy when the Dateline and My Favorite Murder versions make no mention of the killer's murdered baby or the fact that she had a live-in boyfriend the entire time that she was fatally obsessed with another man. You guys have to check it out. It is called A Tangled Web by Leslie Rule. Although I will say, I really thought I was on to something when I found those articles about Cody Gallier's murder. Because when I found the one that talked about how the lawyer was trying to blame it on Liz or Shanna at the time, I was like, of course she fucking did it. Oh my God. I wonder if anyone's put this together now that we know about all this other stuff that she's done. What have I found? Did I just solve a 20-year-old murder and clear an innocent man's name? Uh, but then it's it's all, all of this is in Leslie Rule's book, so I discovered nothing, and there you go. The book, A Tangled Web, is available on Amazon, and that was my main source for this episode. But I also got some information from uh, Dateline, Season 26, Episode 1, My Favorite Murder, Episode 208, a show on the ID channel, True Conviction, Season 2, Episode 1, an episode of Snapped on Oxygen, Season 24, Episode 16, and then my old go-tos, Newspapers.com and Wikipedia. And that's it. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. I'm almost done, I promise. 
Uh, I'm going to skip the fan question and shout outs today because this is already a really long episode and I still have a quick announcement I need to make. So I'll do those next time around. All right, here it goes. Sodet is going to be going on hiatus starting on June 1st. There will still be one more full-length episode this month and another taco break, uh, as well as the bonus episode for patrons. But after that, it's time to hit the pause button for a little bit. For one thing, I need a break. I have been busting my butt as a one-woman show since the end of December, and I don't want to wear my health too thin. Keeping those stress levels down is important for all of us, especially right now. Realistically, I think I'm probably going to settle into a schedule where I do maybe like a few months on, then a month off, or something like that moving forward. I'll keep you guys posted. I'm, I'm still trying to figure this all out. Also, I've got some really exciting projects I'm working on right now, and I need a little bit of time to devote to those. Not, you know, they're not more important than So Dead, but they are important to me. And as I'm getting them off the ground, I just need a little bit of time to devote to them, put them on the front burner for a little while, get them cooking, you know. Plus, I think you guys are really going to like them. And I promise I won't be gone for long. I just need to breathe. I think we all need to remember to breathe. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube at So Dead Podcast. Please check out the Patreon page for ways to support the show financially. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash So Dead Podcast. And be sure to visit SoDeadPodcast.com for all your So Dead merch. As always, you can email me your feedback and story ideas to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. Please, everyone, stay safe and sane out there. And as always, keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks. Thank you.